Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to episode two of the Valley of the Suns podcast, hosted by the Fansided Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And to be honest with you, I wish I was coming to you under better circumstances. Um, We're recording on Sunday after the Suns' back-to-back heartbreaking losses against the Denver Nuggets at home. Uh, The weather outside here in Phoenix is very gloomy, overcast. It's raining a little bit. It's almost like the weather in Phoenix itself is traumatized by the last two games and honestly the last couple weeks that we've seen for the Suns. Um, coming off those back-to-back losses, Phoenix has now lost four of its last five games after starting seven and four. Uh, they've lost six of their last nine overall after starting five and one. It's been a, uh, a brutal stretch. Even if you throw out the three games they had to miss due to coronavirus concerns and health and safety protocols, Um, You know, they coughed up a 23-point lead against the Pistons to lose in overtime. There was that no-show against the Wizards. They lost in the clutch late against the Memphis Grizzlies. They dropped an OT game at home against the Nuggets in a game where Devin Booker got hurt. And then Saturday night, they dropped a double overtime game against the same Nuggets team um, when they were up three with about 12 seconds left in regulation and then Jamal Murray hits a ridiculous shot to tie it and send it to overtime because, of course, he does. This dude just, like, every time he plays the Suns, he does this. It's it's very aggravating to watch if you're a Suns fan because he just goes off against his team every single time. Um, and we're, and we're going to talk about the circumstances of that shot because there's a lot more to it than just Jamal Murray hit a tough shot there. But overall, it's been a painful stretch for Suns fans. Um because it feels like each of their last few losses has found a new but familiar way to torture this fan base, whether it's been, you know, just not showing up for games against poor teams and failing to even, I I would say play down to the competition, but it's not even that, Um, to, you know, losing back-to-back overtime games against a very good Nuggets team when they could have won each one, had a couple of, minor things swung their way so you know last Saturday night's game was great effort considering the circumstances but still painful considering the loss that came the night before and the fact that they were in position to win despite Devin Booker not playing in that game Um, and this latest loss drops them to eight and seven so they're barely over 500 now after starting off the season strong And there have been a lot of reasons behind the Sun struggles, and we're going to get into some of those today. Um, The first of which we got to acknowledge Devin Booker's hamstring situation. Um, He's currently listed as day-to-day, but Monty says he could be out for a week. He threw that possibility out there when we asked about it Uh, because hamstrings are tricky like that. They're just a tricky injury. Um, Same with groin injuries. Those are things that you can do everything everything right, but if you come back too soon, even if you feel healthy, there is a chance of re-aggravating that injury. Um, and Monty said the Suns are going to be cautious with him. So he did not play in Saturday night's game. If he's out a full week 
like Monty says said he might be, that would mean he's going to miss the next two games for the Suns because they play Wednesday and Thursday. Thankfully, those games are not challenging opponents or, or you know, really good opponents. They've got the Thunder and the Golden State Warriors at home, a back-to-back Wednesday and Thursday. So we'll see. They've They've been saying that with Booker's hamstring injury, they're going to monitor it and see how he's feeling. He was feeling sore on Saturday and obviously coming off an overtime game where he played like 40 minutes. You don't want to play him in that scenario. So he's considered day to day for now. The Suns obviously need him back, even though they put up a good fight on Saturday. They would like to get him back, obviously, so they can start to get this season back on track after a recent downturn these last couple weeks. Um, but the Suns are off until Wednesday, which is good news. So he's got a full four days off until it's Wednesday. So hopefully he will be back, but we'll see. That's a situation that needs to be monitored. That's part one of, of seven that we've got here for what the Suns need to do to get back on track here. Part two, and I hate to go into this too much because Monty, by and large, is a huge reason why the Suns culture has changed the way that it has. He deserves all the credit in the world for that and for turning the Suns into a team that's not a pushover, that's competitive on a nightly basis. And obviously, he's had a better roster than most coaches in Phoenix have had over the last few years. But you know, he's turned this team into a team that's actually competitive, that's you know competent on both ends of the floor. But he's got to be better in late game situations. And the Nuggets back to back was a prime example of that. Um, you know, in, in the first game, the Suns got a stop near the end of regulation on a Jamal Murray turnaround, I think. And Chris Paul got the rebound, put the ball on the floor, and there was like two and a half seconds left. And the Suns didn't get a timeout in. So their last play of regulation was basically firing off this half-court shot that had virtually no chance of going in. Game goes to overtime. Suns lose Devin Booker. Suns lose the game. So that play, partly on Monty, partly on Chris Paul, and they both acknowledge that. Um, You know, Chris Paul, by dribbling the ball there after getting that rebound, if the Suns had called timeout, they wouldn't have been able to advance the ball. So they would have been throwing it in from you know, the sideline near their own three-point line, which wouldn't have really helped at all. Um, there's not a lot of of plays you can draw up there that are going to get you a good look. Um, probably a better look than a half-court shot, sure. But Chris Paul dribbling there hurt their ability to call a timeout and actually benefit from it. Um, but Monty was also, if you look at the play, it looked like Monty was still sitting down when the Suns got that rebound. So you've got to be in position to where you can call that timeout. And again, it's it's hard to hold him to the standard of calling a timeout and actually getting the official to acknowledge it in such a quick turnaround where Chris Paul gets the rebound and then immediately starts to dribble. It's really hard to expect that of anyone. But, you know, that's again, that's why it's partly on Chris Paul. He's got to know that if he dribbles there – they can't advance the ball. If you get the rebound with two or three seconds left, you've got to call a timeout right away. Um, but that's that's just part of it. The other part, obviously, in the second game, the Suns were up three with about 12 seconds left. Um, 
and they didn't foul. They were up three. You've got to foul there. And I know a lot of people were saying, well, maybe they were afraid of guys going up with a shot and trying to draw a three-point foul. I get that. But at the same time, if you watch that play again, there were a lot of like Jokic had the ball and his back was turned to the basket. He's not going to throw up a shot when his back is to the basket. If you foul him there and Jamal Murray was dancing around for a little bit because they were trying to kill some clock. They weren't trying to shoot right away because there were still 12 seconds left on the clock. So you've got to take a foul there, put them on the line and make sure they don't get a three point look off. Now, again, we'll talk about the Jamal Murray shot itself in a little bit, but You've got to foul that. Teams are too prideful sometimes, I feel like, and they overthink it when they're up three. Like, we don't want to foul because they might go up with a shot. And the NBA, to be fair, needs to do a better job of clarifying its continuation rule and it, and its rules when it comes to guys going up in a shooting motion on plays like that because it feels like at any other point in the game, if a guy did that, they wouldn't reward him with the shot. But because it's an end-of-game scenario and they know that guys are going to try and shoot that shot, they're like anticipating it. And so they give them more leeway in those situations. So that does need to be clarified, but you've got a foul there. If you're up three and the other team has the ball final possession, you've got a foul. And Monty did say that that was the plan for the Suns. Um, but the problem there was DeAndre Ayton was pretty much on the ball for that entire play. And at that point, DA had five fouls. So if he fouled there, he would have fouled out. And you can say, well, okay, yeah, but if you get one stop, then you win the game. Not necessarily true, because if you foul there and D.A. fouls out, he's out of the game. The Nuggets are going to the free throw line down three with probably anywhere from five to eight seconds left. If they hit two, then they're only down one and you've got to play the free throw game without one of your best defenders and rebounders. And you've also got to get the rebound if they miss those free throws without your best rebounder. So, I mean, no offense to Frank Kaminsky, but. I don't know many Suns fans that would feel reassured needing a rebound, especially if they try to miss intentionally. <clears throat> if the Suns foul late in the clock and there's like two or three seconds left, the Nuggets would try to miss that second free throw intentionally, get a rebound and tie the game. I don't know many Suns fans that would feel reassured by Frank Kaminsky being the guy that needs to get that final rebound to close the game out. That's just me though. So uh, yes, Part of this is on money. Part of this is just both of those late game scenarios were tough situations. Um, but money does have to be a little bit better in those late game situations with managing timeouts, you know, making sure everyone's on the same page. And if DA being on the floor with five fouls was a problem and your your the plan is to foul, then maybe don't have him on the floor. Um and, and you know, maybe it's obvious that if you take D.A. off and put a guy like Frank Kaminsky in, that they're going to intentionally foul. Maybe everybody knows that. But everybody also knew that the ball would probably wind up in Jamal Murray or Nikola Jokic's hands, and D.A. would probably be involved in that scenario. So um, just something to keep in mind moving forward. Part three, it's not just Monty that needs to be better in general in late game situations, it's the Suns as a team because so heading into Sunday's slate of games, the Suns are one of four teams to play at least 10 games in clutch situations. Um, and clutch situations are defined as when the score is within five points either way. 
and there's five minutes or less on the clock. So in those 10 games with clutch situations, Phoenix is four and six, and they've got a negative 2.8 point differential, which for reference is third worst in the league. It's better than only the Wizards and the Raptors. So they have not been good late in games. They've been outscored by 28 points in 55 minutes of clutch basketball. Um, And they've got a negative 18.7 net rating. So per 100 possessions, they've been outscored by 18.7 points in those crunch time scenarios. Um, And it's mostly because of their defensive rating. Their defensive rating is 108.7 normally, but it shoots up all the way to 122.5 in those clutch scenarios. So they're not getting stops when they need to. And you saw it in the back-to-back Nuggets games where they just could not get stops. They were sh- they were scoring back and forth, but they weren't closing the gap because they could not stop the Nuggets late in games. Um, and, you know, their poor shooting in that stretch doesn't help either. They're shooting 39% from the field and 20% from three in crunch time. Um, but this really comes down to needing their two best players to be a little bit better. Like Chris Paul... Chris Paul's been okay. He's shot 12 for 26 in the clutch. He's shot one for six from three, which isn't great. And he ranks 10th in clutch scoring heading into Sunday's slate of games. But he's also a minus 35 in those 50 minutes. Devin Booker has been downright bad in the clutch. Um, you know, he's, he's shooting six for 26, which is 23%. He's one for 10 from three. He ranks 25th in clutch scoring. And he's a minus 18 in those 40 minutes of crunch time action that he's seen. So very uncharacteristic for Devin Booker, because if you remember, Booker and CP3 were both among the best crunch time scorers in the league last year, just in terms of volume, in terms of their ability to get shots off and make those shots. And this year, that hasn't been the case. And I think a lot of that, like we've talked about, is that push and pull, that not wanting to step on each other's toes. And the fact that it's a small sample size, but it is something to keep in mind moving forward because they've got to get better in those scenarios. Um, Part four, and I hate to be that guy because this is something that you, you, you know, you say, I don't want to be that guy who complains about the refs. And then nine times out of 10, that person immediately complains about the refs. But the Suns have been getting hosed in some pretty big moments of these close games lately, especially. Um, And it's not just the Nuggets game. It's something that we saw a bit last year too. And I'm not sure why. I think last year you could justify it as a team, as them being a team, a young team that's on the rise. So they don't really get that kind of respect that a lot of other more established playoff teams get. And maybe it was foolish to think that a perfect 8-0 run in the bubble would suddenly change that perception. But whatever it is, the Suns do not get the same benefit of important swing calls that other teams do. Um, So going to that first Nuggets game, obviously, the foul that was overturned, it was a foul on Gary Harris that that should have been a Devin Booker and one that was overturned and turned into an offensive foul call. So... That would have been, if Devin Booker makes the free throw on that three-point play, that would have given the Suns a five-point lead with four minutes left. And instead, it took away the, those points. The Nuggets come down and score. 
And suddenly that's a five-point swing, a five-point lead turns into a tie game. And that that play swung the momentum of the entire game because from that point on, it, it was game on. Now, to be fair, you can make the point that the Suns, if they wanted to win that game, shouldn't have given up you know a 14-point halftime lead or whatever it was. But it can be both. You know, we don't have to deal in absolutes here. Like it can be both. The Suns should not have given up that lead, and that call should not have been overturned at all. Um, you know, if the defender swat so here's the thing. Devin Booker did make contact with Gary Harris with his left elbow. A lot of Suns fans were complaining about how the right elbow didn't even touch Harris, and that's the one where after he kind of jerked backwards. He didn't make contact with his right elbow. He did make minimal contact with his left elbow. But in my opinion, it was not nearly enough to overturn that kind of that kind of play. Like for me, that's that's incidental contact. Like if the defender is going to swipe at the ball and put himself there. It's not like Devin Booker was clearing out with his elbows. You know, if an offensive player is swinging his elbows to just clear out that space, that's one thing. That's an offensive foul. But Booker's just trying to Euro step around Harris there. And Harris makes a swipe on the ball. And the foul had already been called. So if you're calling a foul, you're obviously not calling the foul on Harris fouling Devin Booker's elbow with his face. You're calling it on him swiping at the ball. And that came first. So I don't see how you overturn that call there. And the league upheld it. The official uh, NBA referee Twitter account or whatever upheld that call. And that's a critical swing call that changed the momentum of the game. The game winds up going to overtime and then Devin Booker gets hurt in overtime. And that winds up costing the Suns another game because they play the Nuggets the very next night and they go to double overtime and then they have guys fouling out and guys cramping up and whatnot. So that's a really critical call. Um, And then, of course, in the second overtime or the second game at the end of regulation, there's a blatant missed travel on Jamal Murray, and then he hits that game time three. And it's hard to tell in real time because watching in real time, you're not you're maybe not focused on the footwork. I know for a fact I was looking more at DeAndre Ayton to make sure he wasn't going to foul because he was closing out hard on that shot. But if you're the official who, if you watch the replay, is literally standing right next to Murray watching him, you've got to see that he takes four steps there. He takes a hop and then he takes another hop step. Like that is a travel. I saw four steps and this is what I'm talking about. I just looked at it. I saw four steps. I saw a step back and then a bump, bump, bump. So it looked like four. It was at least three. And so I'm not the only one that's watching. And this is the stuff that bothers me. If we're going to go back and look to see if the shot was, you know, on time, then we also need to look at his feet. Now, tomorrow they could come out with a, you know, late whatever and say, he, I hope they say he traveled, but it ain't going to help us. But the shot shouldn't have counted because it was a travel. And the frustrating part is that you can't, even if Monty hadn't already used up his challenge on a Michael Porter Jr. three-pointer that, again, another example, Porter stuck out his, his leg and kicked out his leg and that was going to be called a four point play until Monty had to challenge it. And they overturned it, thankfully, because Porter kicked out his leg. But that's a challenge that Monty shouldn't even have to use. 
but then it compound it's get it's compounded because he couldn't have even challenged that last second shot anyway because there was no foul call on the play or anything that he could specifically challenge. You can't just challenge a made shot and be like, no, he traveled. So it's just a really bad scenario all around. And it's weird that the league can look at certain things like foul calls and travels and out of bounds or whatever, but it can't look at things that aren't called on the floor. There's no way to challenge that. And it's weird that on a game tying shot, a critical shot like that, they can't even take a look at it and overturn it or be like, okay, no, he actually traveled. We should have called a travel there. So those are two devastating examples of late game whistles that just don't go the sun's way. And it happens to every team every now and then. I think it feels a lot more blatant for Phoenix because this fan base has been traumatized so many times that it like compounds itself when we see it again and again. But, you know, these are things to keep in mind moving forward. And it's not just those two calls either, you know, like, the Suns had 23 fouls compared to 15 Nuggets fouls in game one. And then they had 31 fouls compared to 20 Nuggets fouls in game two. So it's generally a more favorable whistle for the other side. And part of that we have to acknowledge is that the Suns don't get to the free throw line very often. And that's on them. Part of it is also that Jokic is really good at drawing fouls. Um, you know, like Ayton's sixth foul in the second game of that back-to-back was terrible. Um you know, they're jostling for position and Jokic like flings his head back and flings his shoulders back like he does, exaggerates the contact and gets the foul call. He's good at doing that. Um, but it, it's it's unfortunate that this has been a theme since last year where the Suns don't get a lot of benefit of the doubt on the whistle because they're a young team, because they haven't been to the playoffs forever, whatever the reason might be. Um, and Monty doesn't normally pay much attention to this kind of stuff, but just like he said last year, um, it seems like he's hit his breaking point where he needs to say something to the league. The whistle that we get is, is something that I'm, I just I got to talk to the league because I, I don't understand some of the calls. Like it's, it's just getting old. Um, there were a few, you know, I, I don't feel like I should have to challenge to get it right. And that, that part really bothers me because you lose timeouts. And, you know, I thought, you know, for DA to play that physical and foul out, and I look at Jokic, you know, <laughs> I think he had three fouls. You know, those those are the ones that make you scratch your head sometimes. In a physical game like this, um, it's hard to accept. So it's definitely something that we're going to have to keep an eye on moving forward. I, I don't think it's the reason that the Suns lost that game, but it is definitely something to watch for because – and not even to watch for, honestly, because most people are aware of it that watch the Suns regular, regularly at this point. Um, but hopefully that's something that clears up because the Suns are already having a hard enough time. They're making it hard enough for themselves without, you know, bang, bang plays like that always going the other team's way. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after this. All right. So moving on, part five of something the Suns need to address We've talked about how Monty needs to be better. We've talked about how the Suns need to be better late in games. And we have to take all of this with a grain of salt, especially for the last two games, because the Suns have not had their full rotation. They've obviously been missing Dario Saric. They missed Devin Booker on Saturday. So Monty has had to play some different rotations than he might normally. Um, 
but his rotations have been admittedly weird even under those circumstances. So, you know, part of the blame, I, I know fans want to blame Frank Kaminsky, but like you can't blame a guy. He's playing way above his pay grade in having to guard Nikola Jokic late in games. And, you know, if Aiton hadn't fouled out, if Sharich was available, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation. But then again, the, that is the reality of the situation. And if Kaminsky is the guy that you need to turn to to stop an all-NBA MVP caliber player like Jokic, you're not going to win that game. You're just not. Um, and if Kaminsky's not out there hitting threes, his value to this team is not as high. And he wasn't on Saturday. He went 0 for 2 from 3. So this part of the blame needs to be with James Jones on this one um, because they still have their biannual exception available to them. And that's, you know, you can offer a guy 3.6 million for one year or 7.4 million for two years if you offer him the two year biannual exception. And they've also got a two way contract slot available that they haven't used. And they're still rolling with, you know, Frank Kaminsky, they've still got Damian Jones on the roster who, you know, poor guy, but he is not an NBA caliber player right now in his career. He's just not. And every time they put him on the floor, the Suns get hammered. So I really do feel like this is a situation where James Jones needs to be more active, especially for as long as Sarge is out. He should have been more active right now in getting a third rotation caliber big on this team um they need another backup big and you look around at some of the names that are available Dwayne Dedman Kyle O'Quinn Alex Len was available for a little bit and I know Suns fans are going to make jokes about Alex Len but Alex Len would have been better than Damian Jones and defensively he would have been better than Frank Kaminsky was last night because Kaminsky is a little undersized he can be moved around too easily on the interior I'm not saying Alex Len or Kyle O'Quinn or Dwayne Dedman would have stopped Nikola Jokic in the clutch last night because he was a man on a mission at that point once Aiton fouled out. But they might have stood a better chance at least. And Dedman is a guy who can knock down threes. He's a veteran. He knows what he's doing. He can block shots around the rim. If you have the ability to offer him a contract, especially one that's for above the veteran minimum, you can offer him more than some other teams might. Like, why are they not on the phone with a guy like that? Why did they not, you know, go after Len when he was available? Like, hell, even Tyson Chandler's available right now. And, you know, you can make your Tyson Ch Chandler jokes too. The guy's like 40 years old, but he still would have been better than Damian Jones has been. So I, I'm not sure why the Suns haven't addressed this need yet. Hopefully that they hopefully they do because Damian Jones is not going to cut it. And Frank Kaminsky, if you need stops, if you need interior strength, he's not your guy. He's more of a finesse big. He's a guy that can shoot and make plays off the dribble and can capitalize on mismatches on the block when he's got them. But other than that, he's not, you know, the kind of big that they need because their backup five is usually Sharich. So they're usually going small. They need a little bit more size, a little bit more strength, a little bit more shot blocking on the interior for any minutes where Aiton is not on the floor and the other team has these kind of bigs that can punish you down there. Um, part six, I think we might need to consider giving minutes to Langston Galloway and Etwan Moore, especially if Booker's absence continues. Why not give Moore some run? 
give Galway some run. Um, because you look at the numbers in their recent one and four spurt here, the Suns are taking the fourth most three pointers in the NBA, but they're only making they're making less than 31% of them, which is the third worst percentage in the league. So if you have all these shooters and, and the Suns are already going to be a high variance team with their shooting, they're going to look great some nights because they're shooting the lights out and they're going to look really bad some nights because they're not shooting the ball well. And lately they haven't been shooting the ball well. So why are you not giving more minutes to your bona fide snipers on the bench? Like Galloway is shooting 48% from three this season. He's averaging 18 points per 36 minutes, which is second to only Booker and Sharich on the Suns. Like he's instant offense and Moore is a career 39% three point shooter. Now there are obvious cons to giving them minutes. You know, Galloway is hunted on defense. The scouting report is very clear that he's not a good defender and Moore in his limited action with the Suns, especially in preseason did not look good. He just didn't look like a good fit. But at the same time, campaign has been rough lately. You know, he's averaging four points and three assists in about 17 minutes a game over the last four games. He's shooting like 31% from the field, 25% from three. And he's been, he's, he's got a minus 7.0 point differential. So he's been bad since he came back from that ankle injury. And Abdul Nader, even though he's a better defender than Galloway and gives them a little bit of size and length on the wing, he hasn't been great either. He's, he shot the ball well on limited, like limited number of attempts, but his point differential is minus 9.0 in the last three games. So that's really bad too. Why not give you a, give a guy who can actually shoot the ball a chance. And if you're not trying to upend the rotation, when it, when a critical piece like Booker goes out, you want to try and keep the rotation as similar as possible, just so you're not putting too many guys out of position and giving them roles that they're not quite ready for. Moore is a guy that you can insert into that rotation, put him in the starting lineup so that he can try and replicate some of the things Devin Booker does. He's obviously not going to replicate most of them. He's not the same passer, scorer, shooter, whatever, as Devin Booker is. But you put him in that role, you keep everyone else in their same role, and then you don't have to upend the rotation to make up for one guy's absence for a week. It's something that I I think Monty should try, either with Moore or with Galloway, and keep the rest of the rotation the same, um, just to give it a different look and make sure that you're not putting too many guys out of position the way that you know we kind of saw on Saturday when Crowder was in the starting lineup again. And speaking of that, the last part here that the Suns might want to address is once Booker is back, revert to the old starting lineup. And I know the old starting lineup was not good. It had a very bad point differential, bad net rating. It just wasn't working for whatever reason. But Cam Johnson in the starting lineup is not the reason that the Suns have gotten off to better starts lately. I think it's part of it. It contributes to it, but it's not the driving catalyst that some people might think it is. If the Suns just keep the tempo up, because that old starting lineup was playing at the third slowest tempo in the NBA, um, and then once they made the switch with Cam Johnson in the starting lineup, they went from third slowest pace in the league to ninth slowest, which is still not great, but it's an improvement. I think that you can do, you can keep the pace where it is, regardless of whether it's Crowder or Cam Johnson in the starting lineup. Like 
Cam Johnson helps because he likes to run. He likes to cut. He likes to shoot. He just plays at a faster tempo, but he's not the driving catalyst behind that change. That change has come from Monty. It's come from the coaching staff. It's come from Booker and Chris Paul pushing the ball up the floor more. You've seen them make a concerted effort to do that lately. And the other part of it, the starting lineup looking better recently is just Aiton playing the way that he's been playing. And Crowder showed on Saturday that he can and, and should be in the starting lineup. He had 21 points on six of 13 shooting from three, and he hasn't really been doing much off the bench anyway. And Cam Johnson, as a starter, you know, he's only shooting 39%, 28% from three. Um, he hasn't been great in that starting role. Crowder hasn't been shooting the ball well off the bench. So maybe it's time to flip those roles back. Let Cam Johnson feast off the bench like he was before. Put Cam Johnson with or put Crowder with the starters again and just keep the tempo up like it has been because that's been the bigger difference that and Aiton playing the way that he has. So, you know, I, I really do think that the Suns were right to switch it up and try something different, but it's pretty clear that even with the Suns getting off to better starts, they're not, they haven't been able to sustain them. The shooting hasn't been good. Cam Johnson hasn't been his normal lights out self. He hasn't been feasting off opposing benches it might be time to switch that back and hope that they can figure out that chemistry if they play at a faster tempo. But that's going to do it for episode two of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, please feel free to write me a review with three TV shows that you're currently watching. Uh, you know, I'm always adding to my watch list and maybe we'll touch on them in a future episode. But until next time, this is Joe Borgay signing off.